0: So it's always in my head is that
1: I'm not just working out with one. I'm not working with eating disorders. Uh, I'm not working with alcoholism. I'm working with a person that has
0: three sets of parts, and they're all suffering. Welcome to Herself, an internal family systems and women's spirituality podcast, and a space for you to come home to your innate wholeness and wisdom. You're in the right place if you're devoted to showing up for not only your outer but also your inner life with courage and compassion and if you feel inspired to do that in the good company of other women who are also committed to cultivating greater and greater levels of inner peace and outer fulfillment. I'm your host Sarah Avon Stover, the author of three books, a certified internal family systems practitioner, and a pioneering teacher of women's spirituality for the past 24 years and counting. Here, we explore all different facets of a woman's spiritual and healing journey, both the pretty and the not so pretty parts. And we do this through wisdom talks, practical guidance for navigating the ups and downs of our paths with more grace and gusto, And conversations with other inspiring wayfinders. Above all, if you're here, you know that your continued deepening also serves the healing of our world. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, friends. Welcome back. And before we move on to today's episode, I just wanted to share a brief personal update. I shared a little bit about just some new things that are coming into being, coming alive in my life and my work. I shared that in the last episode, journeying from uncertainty to new beginnings, and if you haven't heard that, you could go back and catch up with it, but I wanted to share that I'm in right now, by the time you're hearing this, just the final few days of finishing up my new book and while I'll still have some more edits to do over the summer the ones that I'm doing doing now is really the the bulk of it and so that that feels really exciting i've been deep in my creative process since last fall with this book and actually i started working on it the january prior to that i started writing the proposal so i've been deep with this book now for about a year and a half And I announced to my email community a couple of weeks ago the name of it because this is coming out next year on May 7th, 2024. It'll be published by Sounds True. And the title is Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth. It has, like my other books, a memoir component, but this this one has even more of a memoir component. It has a lot of personal stories, particularly around serial heartbreaks that I experienced from about 2015, 2016 to 2020. And I also include stories from other women in my life and other women who are my students and clients, so that it really encompasses all different dimensions of heartbreak. And so often we just focus on Betrayal, or not, not, not betrayal, rather, but my book does include betrayal, but uh, bereavement, and breakups and divorces. But there's a whole range of other heartbreaks that we experience as well, and we can feel excluded from those conversations when we don't feel like our narrative is included. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you in a year from now, and you'll you'll definitely be hearing more from me about it between now and then. And pre sales will start. At the end of this year, which I'll, I'll keep you all in the loop about, uh, but this book also has a strong IFS component as well. And for those of you who've been here for a while, you know, that we're, we are talking more about internal family systems here. And this spring, we've actually been having an IFS interview series where I share conversations with a few IFS trainers to help us to better understand and in turn to heal what we can feel to be challenging parts of ourselves that we feel could be holding us back from experiencing the lives that that we want to be living. So last month, we looked at shame, anxiety and depression through an IFS lens. And this month, we're going to gain a really eye opening, really empowering perspective on addictive processes. First, I want to share a trigger warning. So for anyone who feels impacted by addictive processes at any level, I want to offer you the chance to support yourself as you listen to this or to choose not to listen to it. You have my blessing if that's what you feel is best for you to do. And for those who do feel open to listening, I felt like a huge light bulb went off for me and that a huge weight was lifted off of me when I first learned this map of addictive processes from internal family systems many years ago. And I've many of you know my story. I I share I share about it in this episode as well in my books, but I have struggled with addictions like bulimia and anorexia and uh, cigarette smoking at different times in my life. There was also addiction in my childhood home. Um different times of my life when I was younger, workaholism, exercise. So this is this is no stranger to me. And so you can see how when I maybe you can understand how when I learned this particular map of addictive processes, it just, it, it gave me a sense of possibility, like, oh, I can finally understand this, what's happening inside of me that feels so mystifying. And felt like I just couldn't, couldn't, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't heal it, I couldn't get to the root of it. And IFS is ultimately what allowed me to do both of those things. And now I support many women who are in various kinds of addictive processes and helping them with this same path. So, this gives us a really countercultural way of looking at things that are often very taboo. And it normalizes them, it humanizes them, it destigmatizes them which we all know are really crucial aspects to healing anything. We, we need to embrace it. We need to understand it. We need to, to even love it or to feel a sense of friendliness towards it. And also, I want to acknowledge that words like addiction and addict can carry so much weight in our culture. And I invite you instead to look at this as an addictive process and to recognize that we all experience addictive processes, and sometimes they're more extreme than others. And we can be in micro addictions that we engage in each day. You just think about how we relate to email, our phones, social media, our daily cup or cups of coffee or matcha or whatever it is. Those are just some examples of ways that we can get engaged in these either micro and then there's larger macro addictions or addictive processes. So to help us map all of this out in a really clear way, I have invited Cece Sykes to join us, and Cece is an LCSW, as well as a consultant and senior trainer with the Internal Families Institute, where she specializes in trauma and addiction, and she educates therapists around the world on how to apply the IFS therapy model to addictive processes. And Additionally, she's now exploring how psychotherapy affects the therapist's life. She lectures, consults, and leads workshops on these and other related topics, as well as she maintains a private practice in Chicago. She's co-authored a number of articles on treating the impact of sexual trauma in families, and she authored a chapter on addiction in the 2017 book, Innovations and Elaborations in Internal Family Systems Therapy. And she has a new book out, Internal Family Systems, Therapy for Addiction, that's available from PESI Publications. So Cease is deeply respected amongst the IFS community and beyond for her contributions in this field, in particular, on addictive processes. So that's why I wanted to bring her on with us today, and I hope that you find what she shares to be illuminating and helpful. Enjoy. Okay, welcome, Cease. It's great to have you. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for inviting me. And we always start our conversation with a a brief check in. So I invite you to share with us where you're joining us from today and if there are any parts that you want to name that are here with you in the space.
2: Uh,
1: That's a good way to start. Um, I'm here in Chicago, which is born and raised and spent most of my life here. and um, let's see my parts. Well, I have manager parts that want to do a good job and want to make sure I say everything the right way. Um, don't talk too much. Don't talk too little. You know, be very responsive. Uh, my firefighters can get me kind of talking fast, you know, because I'm pretty, I get kind of into it. So they get a, can be a little impulsive. Um, my exiles. Not f- feeling too exile but, you know, always my, those little exiles just want to make sure they're, um, they're good.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And you're, you're speaking about managers, firefighters and exiles, and some people who are listening will know what those are. Some will not. So I'm wondering for those listeners who are not that familiar with internal family systems or IFS, how would you how would you describe it or introduce it briefly?
1: Yeah, great. Um, well, <clears throat> many uh, psychological traditions look at the inner world of the psyche and divide it into three different parts. And IFS divided, uh, Dick Schwartz divided IF, the inner psyche into three different categories of parts. And managers uh, are parts of us that try to, as, as I say, they're the parts that we want our colleagues and neighbors to see, uh, uh, smart, capable, um, our taskmaster, also our inner critics and our inner judges. We can be hard on ourselves when our managers are sort of extreme, but it's the parts of us trying to create stability and sort of improvement. Firefighters are named that because they put out the fires of shame and they often do that with some kinds of substances or practices. It could be the parts that get addicted to food or manage food or get preoccupied with food, preoccupied with sex, preoccupied with body image, preoccupied with substances and you, you know, using and our, <clears throat> but at their healthiest, those firefighters just help us shift gears and promote rest and relaxation and sweetness and adventure. So when they're, they're not always extreme. Um, but we do always have parts that help us balance managers. And our little exiles are just our vulnerability, our shared humanity, how we all have sensitivity and have the capacity to be hurt, you know, and that we never want to lose that. We don't want to be burdened by it, but we also, it's our humanity, be sensitive, trusting, open-hearted, carefree,
2: playful. Um, and those parts can get burdened, but that's how they are, unburdened.
0: And when you say unburdened, can you, can you share what you mean by that? Yeah, that's more IFS language, isn't it? <laughs> How much that's
1: that's infiltrated my speech? Same
2: here, same <laughs> yeah, where.
1: so true, Sarah. So what I I would say is that if we all of us go through childhood not with not receiving perfect attunement, and um, for some of us, uh, early experiences uh, in growing up were far less than nurturing and may have been exploitative. Um, may have been emotionally painful there may have been abandonment loss through divorce to people dying to people just leaving a family uh, losing family members um, to different kinds of uh, substances substance use or mental illness so <clears throat> when we've gone through that as children and we don't really have any help understanding that and and under supporting our emotions uh, we tend to sort of internalize those emotions, internalize some beliefs about ourselves. And then it was in other psychological things, repress it or put it on the back burner and then try to function without being so vulnerable in the public world and in the public sphere.
0: If your curiosity is piqued by listening to today's conversation with Cease, I want to invite you to take this deeper with me. At the end of this month, starting on May 31st, I am leading something called The Inner Critic Cure. It's a four-day women's immersion to help us to transform and heal the negative voices in our heads. And these protective parts of us are often involved in these addictive processes that we're talking about today. And they also impact a lot of other areas of our lives. So over these four days, uh, through a series of live classes that I'll teach online, I'll show you how to get your harshest inner credits to dial back so you can end the inner conflicts that keep you from gaining more forward momentum in your life. This is for women at any stage of her healing journey. And the best part is that it's only $10. So this is the most accessible, most affordable live program series that I've ever offered. And again, it includes daily live classes, a robust online community, and practices to help you to really incorporate and embody everything that you learn. To join us, you can go to programs-sarahavonstover.com forward slash immersion. That's programs hyphen sarahavonstover.com forward slash immersion and a link to this will also be in the show notes i would love to see you there and now back to today's conversation with cease and one of the things that really drew me to your work or um really just brought you more into my, into my sphere was, is the ways that you teach about addictive cycling, addictive processes in IFS. And I'm wondering if you can share with us first how and why you got involved in IFS mm-hmm. and, and then also why this has become a central interest of yours is addictive cycling f- through an IFS lens.
1: Yeah. Thanks for asking me that. Um, well, I've told this story many times, and I'll keep it brief, but um, in the 1980s, uh, in late 70s and 80s, I was here in Chicago, as a, initially trained as a family therapist, so in systems thinking. And Dick Schwartz, his PhD is in family systems, so I knew him in the family therapy community even before IFS existed, um, and he was teaching family therapy and training people and being a family therapist. So we we all said, one day we said, Dick, Dick, we heard Dick has a new idea. <laughs> So he drove downtown to hear Dick's new idea, and he did this little three-hour workshop where he talked about the inner world, which is not really uh, part of the family systems set. Family systems is your product of your, uh, the construct of your family. You're adapting to family dynamics, and you have a role. And this was about working with, he was working with some eating disordered uh, clients, and finally, out of frustration, actually said, well, maybe have the binging part talk to you, that part of you that's so critical of it. And, you know, and sort of setting up inner relationships uh, with these very discreet sort of states of mind and found that that's actually t- by accident, essentially found out that that was actually useful. And eventually people sort of said, I feel like I'm more myself now when they begin to listen to themselves. You know, spiritual traditions uh, teach us to reflect, to listen to ourselves, to tune into something other than just our own inner messy dialogue, Right tried to get us out of that place into another place. And uh, psychological traditions at that time, in the 1980s, weren't weren't really about so much bringing mindfulness or any kind of interior work into psychotherapy. So it was sort of a radical thing. And at the time I thought, wow, is this really gonna work? Um, And he continued to develop his ideas. They were very new at that time. And much later, um, in the late nineties really, I, uh, I mean, I always kept track of him and learned, heard different things. But then the, he just started training people in the late 90s. And I heard him speak and I thought, oh, I'm going to take a training. And I think what had happened to me in the meantime is that I'd done some more of my own work. And I learned a lot about a family therapist, as a family therapist, about my own family system and my own role as the oldest of six kids and depressed mom and history of trauma in my family. And now I learned more about my inner world and my own. So I think I was more ready to sort of sit with my inner world. Um, and that relates to how I got into addictive processes and this idea of firefighters are being extreme parts that can get involved in very negative, chaotic, uh, dangerous behavior that's harmful to the person and harmful to others. Um, but at the same time that they're trying to help. And this really meant a lot to me. I mean, in my own family, not, not all of my family of origin, but partly my family of origin and not too far out in the family uh, genogram, we cover all the firefighters, lots of firefighter history in my family of drinking, drug use, gambling, uh, sexually acting out, uh, suicide. So um, oh, when I, you know, in effect, some of this affected my former marriage, so, really hearing how these parts that look pretty dangerous, pretty hurtful, have hurt people, are committed or look addicted to hurting themselves and others, how to understand that and how to feel the complexity toward the person with all that going on. I think in a way it's been my life's journey, you know, is to really look at that. And um, when I was working with, as a family systems therapist, they worked with a lot of trauma and they were always working with primarily sexual abuse survivors, men and women who have been exploited and abandoned and um, traumatized uh, in, in their childhoods and perhaps going on and on. And the complexity of how they saw the person who exploited them, the people who were there and witnessed but weren't able to protect them or didn't protect them, just the complexity. It all prepared me um, for this. Many people I worked with talked about, and it was commonly talked about at that time, to your inner child. So the idea that we have something interior that holds old memories, that there's more to us than we put out in the world, I think has been around for a while. But IFS gave me a way to utilize that, and I got a, when I first heard. Um, These conversations about firefighters, I wept. I just felt like, okay, all right, I get that now. That makes sense to me. And the desire of that person to be better, but also the inability of them to be better immediately without help. So I was immediately fascinated with that aspect of the work and wrote an article at the time called Why I Love My Firefighters was the first thing I ever wrote. And that was over 20 years ago about the fact that firefighters have a healthy role in the system as well. And when people, you know, even, <laughs> and it's a universal that we all have firefighters. We all have managers, we all have exams.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's the most radical part of the perspective on the addictive cycle in IFS because it is mm. so dominant in our culture to to hate, to go to war with, to try to get rid of, the aspects of ourselves that lead us to drink or to smoke or to shop compulsively or have yes. a lot of sex or whatever it is. and it can also cause us a lot of pain. And um, you know, in my life, I I also grew up in a in a home where there, there was addiction. And so as a teenager, I developed the addictive cycles, although, One of them wasn't that addictive at first. A cigarette smoking at first, I did that because it was cool, and then it became an addiction. Yes, and also um, bulimia. Yes, and which both of those are firefighters, and they would circle back as as I got older at different times and become these cycles that I had a really hard time breaking Mm. when I would reach a certain level of stress or vulnerability. And even though I. Have a lot of self awareness and did, did a lot of therapy. It still was not helping me break the cycle until yeah. I really, really got to the root of it with with IFS. And I work with a lot of women who are experiencing this this exact same thing in different ways. Maybe it's maybe it's binge eating, um, maybe it's drinking, maybe it's smoking pot. Um, and then the, you know the, the further end of the spectrum, there can be suicidal ideation. So I think this, this, this idea that really learning to value our firefighters and understand what they're doing. So in this, in the case of these addictive cycles cease where, where it seems like these parts are doing something bad or wrong from certain perspectives or from like a, more like a dominant cultural perspective, what, what are they doing from an IFS, from an IFS perspective? What are they, what are they trying to do? Um, it's so interesting
1: you just brought me back to a memory i didn't even know exactly everything i was saying or we were saying when we were working in the early 80s but we would say all these bulimics, their dads all drink <laughs> you know and we'd be bringing families in and we'd be bringing everybody in and all these different parts coming up and so you know we didn't exactly know what it meant but we you know we weren't but as as family therapists we were just noticing how the family was trying, everybody was trying to cope and everybody was a little bit stuck. Yeah. So what will help, help you, you know? So um, in IFS, the way we'd say this, for instance, pit parts that, I, I mean, I'm really okay with the word binge because of course I know exactly what it means, but sometimes I want to say different words like comfort eating, and emotional eating, but I get, you know, obviously sometimes there's such ferocity and intensity around it that the word binge feels right. But I feel the words we use really matter and they really go in deeply. And I sometimes I want to remind all myself, everyone I do consultation with and everyone I work with that, our exiles are always listening. <laughs> you know, and so when they binge, you know, they can just feel that shame, right? So I really want to be gentle with some of the, even the words about describing it, but parts who comfort with food or or trance out with food, right? Um, there's those parts. And then there's the parts to get rid of it so that, you know, to get rid of the evidence and also to find it in a crazy way, its own balance again, rebalancing again, um, or to hide. You know, you have to listen to their intentions. But overall, uh, I know when there's that kind of preoccupation going on, of course, what are you, how, I always say to those parts first, how are you trying to help? So how are you trying to, ask those parts, how are you trying to help me when you help me? And I, I separate out the different activities. I separate out the part that wants to compulsively eat from the part that wants to get rid of it, from the part that restricts in between, you know? And then, and to me, those are all firefighters uh, because they all have an impulse and a compulsiveness. They don't feel like they have a choice. And so I put them on the firefighter side because they don't feel like they have a choice. And on the manager side of the parts, I think, oh, I have a choice and you're messing up. And so all that judgment and perfectionism and trying to get back on track stuff that managers do, And I always want to honor all the ways in which someone has deep suffering, up all night doing stuff, wakes up the next morning, goes to work, pays bills, takes care of their job, takes care of their family, despite everything. So managers are always sort of underappreciated, and at the same time, we also underestimate the impact of negative of those negative sort of judgmental parts and the perfectionism. So building a relationship with them gives my clients some ease. So both of those protectors. Managers by trying to head it all off at the pass and be perfect, and firefighters by saying, can't be perfect, need a break. Um, they're both primed to protect the, fan, the person and helping them function so that the vulnerability doesn't overtake. The shame, the old memories, the feeling not good enough, the the fears and terror of abandonment. So <clears throat> it's always in my head, is that I'm not just working out with one, I'm not working with eating disorders. Uh, I'm not working with alcoholism. I'm working with a person that has three sets of parts and they're all suffering. So I love this manual for being able to get specific with, with the different ways we're trying to protect ourselves and escape that firefighters help with, avoid and escape and soothe. And the different ways our managers try to help us stay on track, return to normal. Everybody, you know, so many managers, I just wanted to look normal. You know, you grow up in a house where everybody's crazy, drinking, they're fighting all night long. You go to school, I want to just look normal, right? So all the parts that try to help us do that and just sending them a lot of love and compassion.
2: And this part allows us to send that compassion each place it needs to go. You know, and it, the specificity of that, I think, is we understand the way plasticity of the brain of the brain
1: that we can build new neural pathways. We can build a new way. We can increase our ability to show ourselves compassion, to show curiosity, to persist
2: in um, listening to our inner world. Um, that for me brings up that ninth C, I say, there has to be a ninth C, which is choice. You know,
1: and the last thing I'll say around that is someone who's struggling with compulsivity, they don't feel like they have a choice over their thing, whether it's food or alcohol. And again, most people have more than one, right? Or they've gone from one to the next, right? So, <laughs> um, but I might, they might notice that they feel a choice in other parts of their life, you know? My brother called me. He asked me for money again. I didn't argue with him. I didn't yell at him. I just said, I hope you, I hope you go for help. And no, I'm not giving you money. And I hung up the phone. That's a choice. Huh? What does it feel like to do that? What did it feel like to have that boundary? What did it feel like that when your parents called and asked you to come over and you knew it'd be crazy and you didn't go? You said, no, I'm not going to go. And you didn't fight. What happened when you handled this differently at work? So at the same time, of course, building relationships with firefighters. So those moments, self allows us a moment of pause. We have to pause and then we meet our next part. And in that pause, uh, a lot of movement occurs. And as someone can pause longer uh, with their parts, there's more and more opportunity to make new choices. Um,
0: is, can you speak to just um, briefly define what self is? In IFS, and you mentioned choice as the ninth C. Can you just briefly mention the other eight Cs? Right, there I go again. There's my, I'm putting on my
1: IFS. Um, so in IFS, there's three, base, the Psyche's developed and in, you know, divided into three parts. Um, and then it's also the, what's different about this model is this idea that we can help clients when we help them identify uh, there are parts um, that when we know when we notice and pay attention to our parts, there's an easing or a regulation that happens. Someone comes in anxious, and we welcome their anxiety and listen to it. They feel a little less anxious. Self being the place inside for the somatic type people, it's it's that place where you're sort of in your window of tolerance, where you're feeling kind of regulated for polyvagal or somatic experiencing or sensory motor. Um, another way to think: people neurodiverse. It might some of these words don't make sense, but to feel regulated, to feel calm, to feel even-handed, those are words. And also, the ability to notice. I always say self equals awareness. So we're unconscious. We don't know in the beginning what is motivating us to uh, eat or to restrict. We just know we're that's the urge. And what's unconscious, what's not aware, what we're not self-aware of is the loneliness, for instance, that came first. So when in IFS, we say that everyone has a self, they have the capacity to feel regulated, uh, to feel um, curious and to begin to notice
2: uh, their inner world and notice the external world with more clarity also.
0: Yeah, So what I'm hearing you say in terms of one is looking at herself and an addictive cycle that she is currently in, or has been in the past is first just noticing these three aspects of the psyche, the firefighter, yeah, the, the manager and yeah. the exiled parts. And to see that th- these are all in pain. They're all, they're all needing support and also to ask, how are they trying to help? How are they trying to help? And then to bring that um, that pause or that that ninth yeah. scene, that choice from that more calm, regulated center, if possible, to start to relate to them. The first choice is to choose a part, find and
1: focus. That's a choice. What parts do I want to find? And so it's sort of training you to find and to focus right there, just to learn to focus internally is that first, the first bit of IFS. And you reminded me when you said the three parts, the, the reason I'm interested and pay attention to looking at those three parts is because we all have patterns. And when we have an addictive process, it's repetitive. So we actually operate in very similar patterns throughout a day or throughout a week. I And we, so that when I help my clients start to look at, they start tracking, okay, what happened when I felt the urge to use, and then what happened, and then what happened, and then going back, what happened before that in my day, and they track different events, and then they connect what emotions were coming up in those events, they begin to see the pattern, oh my God, I had, oh, there I was lonely, then, or oh, there I was being critical again on myself. So they begin to have awareness of their patterns and we don't have to find, sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. Sometimes soon as we see people I do consultation with, all they see is parts. They say, no, look at patterns. You have chunked those parts into uh, their categories and you can start to see when I'm soothing escaping, when I'm feeling vulnerable and how I try to get back on track. And then when that doesn't work, how I feel vulnerable or bad again, And then try to soothe again. So these are actual patterns that we all can relate to. The universality of this is, is there anybody who doesn't know the experience of having an activity or a practice, a thing they're doing in their life that they try to work on and get different that they're not entirely okay with, and they don't have other parts of them that get preoccupied with fixing it? This is a universal experience, I think, for most of us. And this is how it evolved that we have these three parts. And when we're busy trying to decide whether or not leave or stay, do this, do that, we're not noticing our vulnerability. What's underneath? And we're trained not to notice it. I think our culture helps us not be vulnerable. Never let them see a sweat.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And the healing happens in actually turning into that vulnerability you got it. It, To
1: to me, it happens all the way around. It's healing to see how hard my managers work. It's healing to unblend from a perfectionistic part that says you can't make a mistake. It's healing to listen to how, um, as this woman was saying just the other day, her drinker tried to help her with the insecurity of being a mom, the insecurity of being a wife, the insecurity around uh, all stuff in her family growing up. She was completely clear this when you've had compassion and had that level of, of understanding of yourself, so there's healing all the way around. This one did an enormous amount of healing and didn't really touch into her exiles other than to say, I know there was pain there when I was young. Now she, she's ahead of the therapy in her life, so there's that, of course, but enormous healing just
2: connecting to the part that was so was so hidden and shamed so long ago.
0: And I also want to speak to, and I, I know this can be hard to quantify, but that this process of healing addictive cycles takes time. And I found within my own healing journey and the women that I support is it's often it's often the aspect of one's healing that takes the most time. It requires a lot of patience and really staying with it, really showing up. And, um, and there, there's also pain and frustration in that, that can come up of just feeling like you're inside these cycles and feeling like you maybe make a little progress and then you're back in the cycle. So can you speak, of, can you speak more about how you see this, um, for people who, who are feeling discouraged of, I've been, I've been working at this for so long and it's, I'm still. I'm still
1: doing this. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, You know, thanks for asking that. And that's why I really, I hardly ever, I don't like to use the word addict. You know, if my client wants to use it, I'm okay with that, but I want to say what I really like to identify the behavior I think the word is, there's a lot of stigma attached to it, a lot of stigma uh, and assumptions around the word addiction. Even, you know, we keep trying to find new words, disordered eating, eating disorder. We try to find new words and we are always trying to find less stigma, substance use. Um, So when I'm thinking about this, I, I also, I just sort of try, even though it's a clunky phrase, addictive processes, so much more clunkier than addiction. I like to think of it as addictive process because there are ways in which those parts, the my client tried to cope when they were six and four and 12 and 11 and 17. And there's ways, little firefighters that came in, you were you know, just really honest. And I just so appreciated your journey around, you know, knowing that you wanted, that you smoked when you were younger, and then a different journey around bulimia and food and preoccupations there. And you know, there were events in your life that left you vulnerable to really loving the feeling of how nicotine just snaps you to attention and feels better. So I always say, what was missing that that felt so good, right? So that was a process. And so I want to say to my clients, I might say to them, when was the first time you did anything that was risk-taking? So you know, I hear about shoplifting or stealing beer out of refrigerators, or laying with boys or laying with girls in the park. You know, and you know just to help us have compassion for the fact that that vulnerability was was had to be managed for such a long time. So people might say like, I had my first drink and I felt so much better, and then I became an alcoholic. Now I say, well, what was feeling so bad? A lot of people have a drink but it doesn't, doesn't do that much for them, as much for them, you know? So, but it did so much for you who was hurting, who needed, who inside needed that, who needed to feel so much better. So <clears throat> that is a process that developed. And so the healing process takes time too. So to go back to the other piece about what you're saying, the other end of it is when we're working on it. Um, I always say, uh <clears throat> Progress, not perfection. And uh, I think that's a 12-step line, which is noticing how far I've come, not how far I have to go. I think that hopelessness, uh, and in particular, well, food is really tough because we can't get away from food. We can quit some stuff. We can't quit you know, nourishing ourselves. We need to nourish every day. So that sets up a decision tree every day of our lives around that. So... <clears throat> For most people who are struggling to get control or trying to heal processes that have become compulsive, there are hopeless parts. And the thing about hopelessness is that in IFS, it is parts. So I always wanna help my client get to know and blend from hopelessness, from helplessness, from despair. Many times when we grew up with people who never changed and in fact got worse rather than better, Our hopelessness started really young. So in IFS, we can go towards those parts. We can help them. uh, We have some healing processes around and helping people letting go of early pain that are very specific
2: to this model. And that's all a part of the healing process as we move forward. And um, if something
1: new happens, a new loss, a loss of a relationship, that hopelessness may come back. So in IFS, we just uh, can go back to those parts and help them let go of at least the old energy and the old beliefs that they carry, the beliefs that things don't get better, the beliefs that help is never coming, the beliefs that no one actually really cares about me. These are powerful beliefs that are stuck in our system. And, and the, working on that takes is a process too. Uh, But continuing to work on that um, is always uh, allows the, my experience allows the system more movement and gives the protectors, uh, it it lessens their
2: drive, right? Lessens their need to overact.
0: And what do you think about, um, you know, like this concept of a dry drunk? So say that someone Mm -hmm. stops doing something. I'll just say they say they stop drinking, but then they start doing something else in an addictive way. Like they start chopping a lot or they start eating a lot or smoking cigarettes. And what do you think about that? Kind of like the addiction just gets transferred over to something else.
1: I think it's sort of normal. I think it happens most of the time, actually. I mean, the phrase around dry drunk is that someone, uh, there's a, a few different ways I guess people see it, but I might see it as someone who they gave up their alcohol and their managers took over their system and just t- t- keep a really tight, tight control of their emotions. And what does that mean? They don't they may be very numb, numb to joy, uh, prone to irritability, um, because some, anything that's vulnerable has to be kept under wraps. And now there's only one there's only one protector, the managers to keep all that vulnerability on the rep. They no longer had the firefighters to help them. And that's a really tough way to live. They call white knuckling it because a person has enormous anxiety and intensity around it. They can never go to a family buddy. They can never go to places. There's a lot of limitations and there's a lot of pain still in the system. Lots of pain. doesn't look, You can't see on the outside. Around sort of transferring addictions and those kinds of phrases, I think this happens... All the time. People, you know, most people who use substances stop using substances on their own. Some are using them more compulsively, some somewhat less so. Um, but whether you got help with a treatment program, with a 12 step program, or on your own, um, unless there's been an opportunity to also, I always think there's a reason why we got compulsive. And if, and there's emotional reasons unless we have an opportunity for support around some of that emotional stuff, uh, we're going to need to continue to, to um, protect ourselves from it and find a new protector. So I'm not really getting high anymore. I'm not using weed anymore, um, but I'm kind of into food or I'm really into gaming or I'm into gaming and food or I'm into a series of relationships that keep me very, very preoccupied. I might get back into work and go heavy duty into work and so I don't want to shame any of those decisions and choices. I just want to say,
2: if we're doing something in a compulsive way, I know there's suffering underneath.
0: And it's in, because that is so common, may, maybe for many, that is just a step in the healing process. And maybe some people just stay in that step.
1: You got it. Or so.
0: maybe some, or some people are now yeah. going to going deeper and looking out that what what is that underlying vulnerability and going back to just getting curiosity about those white knuckling manager parts and the vulnerable parts that they're protecting.
1: You got it. And. <clears throat> the more that people have the opportunity to get that kind of support. Sometimes you get that kind of support because you you've ended up in a healthy relationship. God forbid <laughs> it's healthy. There's mutuality it's balanced. You love each other about the same amount. You help each other grow. Sometimes that's another healing friends help, friends help different family people help. Sometimes you have a situation at work where you feel you can grow. You can get, go back to school. Many you start playing a musical instrument. You start dancing, you start playing, you know, soccer, So many things can be healing. Any and all of those things are healing to our system. So people can heal in their own ways and in their own times. Um, But, you know, I guess that's what I mean by a process. So part of their process may be to give up, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol and just be preoccupied with food or, you know, have trouble with anger or be preoccupied with gaming um, or get really involved in caretaking. So it's just to track. What, where are we now? On our journey. I catch every person at a certain time of their journey. And we, uh, and the idea of therapy is to move them forward from this point of their journey to the next.
0: And where do you feel like uh, 12step programs fit in with this, approach, the CIFS approach to healing these processes?
1: Well, I think it can fit in very, very well. Uh, What I like to say is almost everybody I meet, if I have a few minutes to talk with them about this issue, has an opinion about 12-step programs. I hardly find anyone goes, gee, I, I don't have any opinions about it. Occasionally, but not usually. And therapists can have a very, very strong, uh, my my broader colleagues have very, very strong opinions about it, very pro or very anti. And I run into a lot of therapists that, are very, that worry a lot about 12-step programs and yet really don't have any personal experience with it, but they have some. But I always wanna hear, where did, how did you form your opinion? Where did your opinion come from? And sometimes when I keep listening, I find out a brother who went to 12-step and then never got better. Or a father who tried 12-step and died. And you know, there's just some stories around that. It doesn't work. And I, you know, and so some of that is really fueled by some real losses. So I just want to say that when people have opinions about 12-step, I always want to listen to them and where they come from and where they heard that from. Um, and so and many clients who have been in a 12-step program, sometimes 12-step, when you go on your own. To uh, the church in your neighborhood, to the church basement in your neighborhood because you decided to go, that's one way to become in touch with some kind of 12 step. When you're in a treatment program and they say, here's the meetings and you will go and you must attend and this is how we're doing it and here's your sponsor, that's a different kind of exposure to 12 step. And so much, 12 step is integrated in so much treatment. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, I'm just saying, that for people who've struggled with autonomy issues and struggled with compulsion, uh, one of the, the hierarchical uh, sort of authoritarian messages in some treatment aren't conducive to helping people find their own way. They're conducive to setting up polarities. So having said all that, with what I think is I when I have a client who's struggling, I say often one hour a week, with me or somebody like me isn't enough for you isn't enough it's really you might benefit from some other supporting groups and being with other people who are doing what you are doing and here are all those options to do that and I always include 12-step there's also refuge and smart recovery and there's they might need to go to a survivor group for sexual abuse survivors they might want to go to a group for lgbtq for a group supporting you know new queer identities you know whatever whatever group feels like it's right for them, you know, learning, you know, something else about themselves. Um, I just feel that there's, uh, I always invite my clients to consider um, something outside of themselves. There's a whole, I could give a whole conversation around the ways that I might translate some of the IFS language to 12 step. A couple of my colleagues have done so Mary Kruger and I just wrote a chapter uh, for a book coming out all together, us and me, <clears throat> Mary's part of our chapter was talking specifically about some vignettes in terms of using some child sec language and helping her clients think about it. So thinking about um, uh, character defects as just parts that have gotten out of balance and, um, you know, thinking about God, can, if you're not feeling like there's some sort of externalized grace out there, thinking about God being that place inside where we're at peace and connected to that place of peace. So there's different ways to offer some translations. Um, I always ask people, what do you feel like after a meeting? What parts come up after a meeting? Uh, what parts come up after you talk to your sponsor? So I want to invite that conversation. And I do, I am curious with my client if they're not feeling better after those interactions. Uh, that's an important thing for us to look at, is that there are parts that can't that are holding them back in some way? Or is there something in that setting that actually isn't a good fit for them?
0: I'm wondering if you could lead us through a short meditation or practice to help some listeners just start to apply some of what we've been talking about to themselves and their own inner worlds, maybe to start to notice these different categories of parts Mm -hmm. that might be
1: operating Mm -hmm. inside right
0: now. Well, an exercise
1: I do a lot. Do you want me to just to tell you what it is? If you
0: could could guide us through just to, you know, maybe like three, three to five minutes type thing. Mm -hmm, Sure. So uh, one of the things I like to
1: do a lot, I might invite people if we're going to get ready to do it. If you're listening, if you want to join us in this is to just pause for a moment. So pause means you're no longer looking at the screen. Um, you're letting yourself close your eyes. You may be letting yourself move from your some chair to another chair or lay down. So just noticing what happens when you stop one activity and shift to another activity.
2: And maybe you want to take a breath in that shift and maybe another. Just breathing being one way we can uh, interact with our sympathetic nervous system. And just as you just maybe take a slight deeper breath or a longer exhale, I invite you to choose a, a firefighter. I might call it your
1: favorite firefighter. That doesn't mean it has to be your one you battled with the most, it can be something that's not harmful, eating ice cream. Although, right, somebody out there is having a part saying that's harmful, and I know that. (laughs) But find a part that does something that some of your other parts aren't always thrilled about. They think you do it too long or too late at night or spend too much money
2: on it or spend too much time. So just taking a moment to choose a soother, escaper, distractor part. And once you've chosen that part, I invite you to observe yourself, engage in that activity. Like you could watch
1: yourself through a window or a one-way mirror. So watching yourself on the sofa with a drink and some food and watching Netflix till three in the morning, watching yourself gaming, watching yourself
3: cycling through some shopping stuff, whatever it is. getting higher edibles, watching sports,
1: having a few drinks, just watch yourself in any one of those activities. And as you do that, watch the expression on your
2: face. And are you, is your expression relaxed? Is it happy? Is it really, really focused? Is it sort of checked out and blank? Not a right or wrong, just,
3: just notice.
2: And then take another moment to notice your body. Does your body look relaxed and at ease? Does your body look sort of drained and flattened? Does your body look sort of stimulated and energized? And then when you're ready, if this is okay for you, Ask that part that's doing its thing, helping you shift gears and check out a little bit. Ask it a little bit more. What else can you tell me about how you're trying to help me? And what are you afraid would happen if you couldn't help me like this? If If never again, could you help me this way?
3: And just really, really listen to that answer. And you can ask, is there any other ways you're trying to help me? Any other fears you have and not do as if you couldn't do this anymore? And then really listen and let the part know and reflect back to the part what you've heard.
2: And help that part feel heard by you. And then you might notice, even as you were doing this, perhaps even all along,
1: another judging or kind of evaluating or critical part that's like, really? You should never be doing that. You should be over that by now. You should know better than that. That is really not going to help. That part is out of control. So
2: just notice the part that's got an opinion about it. On this model, we might call it a manager, You know, a part that's trying to take charge. And just take a moment and listen to the words of that part. Maybe it almost feels like a little team of parts with an opinion, with opinions. And just for a moment, listen to their opinions. And let them know that they're being heard. And that you, there is a part who's doing that soothing. But you aren't that part. You're the one who's listening to them. And maybe if, it's, if it feels right, you can say, well, you guys have a point. This part can take it too far sometimes.
3: maybe letting them know
2: that they're maybe not, what if it's not their job to fix that soother? What if they could leave that to you to work on? And then throughout this process, sort of around the edges of things, you may have occasionally felt that, that twinge (laughs) or that little shudder of feeling kind of lonely or shame, or just not
1: good enough, or just, there's no words, but just not, just feeling uncomfortable or
2: in pain, or just stressed or overwhelmed. And that's our little vulnerability. And nothing to change, nothing to fix. Just let that little one know you see that it's there, you feel that it's there, little one or ones And does it have one thing it needs to show you about this? Just the one thing, we can't hear its whole story right now. One thing,
3: just for now. And let the little one know you hear it.
2: And you're really taking it in, and maybe sharing a little of your heart with that one too. And then
3: after maybe at the end of this uh, podcast
1: or when you have time, is just sit down and put these parts on paper. I use a triangle, one inverted triangle, one side for managers, one side for firefighters, and then exiles down at the bottom. Or just write it out narrative as to what parts
2: you noticed. And then after you get that on paper, take a moment and just look at your pattern. And just say, wow, have I seen that happen before? Does that look familiar for me? And just sort of seeing if you can just open your heart to whatever's on that paper. And let these parts know you see how hard they're working. But maybe you'll continue some work with them so they can shift a little bit.
3: Someone might need some support. And just another big, Inhale, exhale, if you can. Mm, Letting your parts know you'll come back to them at another time. That was
2: really helpful. Mm, Good.
1: You know, you can do that
2: at a, at a variety of paces, right?
1: And in my workshops, I, I sometimes I spend all one day, with, usually I spend all one day with just one side, one, each side of the triangle, right? <clears throat> all day, we go back to that. But it's also really useful to look at the whole, to look at the pattern. Does it feel like, you don't have to get into it, Sarah, but it feel like, could it feel like you could see a little pattern or anything come up that you want to say anything about?
0: Definitely. Yeah. I, um, the, the one that I worked with was around working and it's, I mean, it's not, it's not a huge, it's not a great way. I feel more relaxed around my addictive processes now, but it's still a, like a micro process. And the part that kind of is like, gets compulsive. Like we need to do this now we need to fix this thing. And And then the judges it like, no, like we, we need to be more relaxed or we not, we said we weren't going to be online at this time. (laughs) And and then getting that curiosity Well, what's, yeah, what's at the edges of this? Like, what are, what are those feelings that are, that are here that maybe don't have enough space because of this back and forth between these two parts. You got it. Exactly. We can't get to
1: the vulnerability underneath while the back and forth's going on. Yeah. Yeah. But right, even something as simple as work, I mean, obviously work isn't simple, but it's not, not, on the face of it, there's no harm, right? But to look at it in the new ways, and for some of us, I'm not, doesn't sound this way for you, but for some people, they ignore their bodies when they work, they ignore sleep, they work too hard, family relationships struggle, intimate relationships struggle. So getting curious about any of our stuff (laughs) that turns on and won't turn off. Yes. To me, it's all addictive process and we all are familiar with it to some extent or another. It gives us all humility as clinicians when we're working with it.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of compassion for my students and clients who are who are in these cycles really strongly because I've been there before and I know I know what it feels like. I know how hard it can be.
1: Yeah, that's right. There's just a lot of suffering there. And that's great. You can bring your, your journey though, that wisdom of your journey to them. And that's wonderful.
0: So to close, I just want to just turn the, the focus a little bit towards, towards you as a woman, as a person, mm-hmm. and ask you like, what are some things that you do each day that most sustain you? Cause you're obviously sharing a lot with people, supporting people a lot. What do you, what do you do that sustains you?
1: Mm. Well, I do have to find that work-life balance. I work on that a lot and thinking about that a lot in terms of you know, how much work to take clients, trying to plan my calendar, my calendar is planned out a year, usually a year two years into the second year, into 2024, for instance. So really thinking thoughtfully around all of that so that I still have time. I mean, the things that resource me, I, I walk pretty much every day, I do some yoga. Um, I have a lovely partner now in my that I found in my 60 plus years. <laughs> later in life for both of us which is wonderful i have grandkids that i like to see i like i like to read books if i'm not sleeping in the middle of the night out comes the kindle and i just read a novel don't read anything you know useful read a novel in the middle of the night to, to go back to sleep if i need to you know <laughs> um and i think you know sometimes there's people different authors and Lamott is one and there's others pema children and I can't think of others in this moment, but just that I might go back to reading some people that just mean something to me and just get reminded of just, just touches into maybe myself or my spirituality or my sense of, you know, just getting, you know, acceptance. Um, and I have friends, I've had friends throughout my life that I've been very, very close to. Um, some I have lost now and that's, um, I was thinking about a dear friend. We had lunch together every Monday in between our clients, every Monday for 20 years. We had a long lunch, like two, two and a half hours in between, you know, in our day. And it was so sustaining for both of us. And uh, she died a couple of years ago. So these are all things that I, I need all of that. <laughs> I I need all of it. And I'm sure some other things I'm not thinking about, you know, my family, I have family around me, my sister. You know, just all of those things. And I will say that my work is mostly, if I have, if when I'm out, when I'm not in, when I don't have enough time to do what I need to do, then my managers, my exiles, and my firefighters are all are all inflamed. Uh, but I love this opportunity to be here, to, to speak to your audience, to, I do love talking about this, talking about this work. And it's, it is real it is really nourishing to me uh, unless I'm unless I'm exhausted, <laughs> then of course, my managers are taking over and <laughs> till I'm over and my firefighters take over. Um, but <clears throat> I need to do all of those things, you know, to, um, you know long history of my family of eating disorder, disordered, eating distorted body image, all of that's in my family and my mom had a lot of stuff around that. And, my sister and I, and I know I pass them on to my two daughters who are in their adulthood now. So we're all, we're all trying to find our balance and, you know, to just come back to loving myself and loving, focusing on acceptance is really
2: huge.
0: And what, what do you feel is your current growing edge?
2: Oh, wow. That's my growing edge.
0: You
1: know, one of the things I'm saying to myself, this is my little mantra for, you know, I try to have a mantra for a period of time. My mantra this year so far has been to slow down. So even like I talk fast, I present my PowerPoints fast, you know, I think fast, which some of that's great, but some of that, you know, so I'm really trying to just slow down. And even for the things that I enjoy, slow down, really just let myself notice Uh, I don't want to rush through life, the good or the bad. I really don't want to rush through life. So I think my growing edge is, that's my growing edge right now. I might have a new growing edge soon, but um, that's what I've decided my growing edge is now. And and it's interesting how much that I have to go back to that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. and Thank you for being here with us. And thank you for sharing your wisdom and your passion. And I know this is going to benefit a lot of people. Ah oh, well, thanks
1: for inviting me, Sarah. It's delightful and delightful to meet you in person, or sort of in person, in sort Zoom of in person.
0: person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hopefully, I'll there, you where can listeners learn more about you if they if they want to? Um, there, I have a website, C Sykes LCSW. They can go to my website and you can see workshops I'm doing this year. I've got a couple of workshops coming up this year that you can like a two day one in June that people can do on addictive processes and a couple of others my, see my IFS schedule. I have a book that just came out last month, IFS Therapy for Addictions. It's available at Barnes and Noble. It's available on Amazon. It's available at the IFS bookstore. Um, And I'm, the feedback I get is that you don't need addictive processes. It's good for IFS. It has a lot of exercises. It's good for clients. You can use some of them with your clients, no matter what's going on with you. So it's just good systems approach. Um, So just Uh, and I'm very grateful to Martha Sweezy who's my main co-author and then
0: Dick of course for the foundation of the model he's provided
1: so there's that
0: great I'll (laughs) put the links to both of those your website and your book in the show notes I didn't realize that that book is here but I I look forward to to getting that yes it's it's finally here and I
1: boy is it good to be on the other side of that
2: (laughs) yeah
0: yeah okay thank you so much thank you Sarah bye-bye thank you for joining me today for another episode of the herself podcast and thank you for taking the time to turn in and tend to yourself this is a lifelong journey and every little step we take matters along the way I'm right here walking beside you sharing my own twists and turns and what I learned from them as we go If you enjoyed what you heard today, I invite you to go deeper with me by enrolling in my free course, Seven Habits of Whole Women. Just head over to sarahavonstover.com, click on the link in the top right corner of the page, and the first day of this free seven-day mini course will be sent to you right away. Inside, you'll discover simple things you can do to experience your wholeness more often, starting right now. And if you haven't already, I invite you to hit subscribe on this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. If you enjoyed your time here, I'd also be very grateful if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast. That way other women who might enjoy this can better find it too. Above all, keep going. I believe in you. And until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.